Have you ever wondered how composers choose subjects for their new works? Or what inspires their musical choices as they begin composing? And once the opera is written, what happens next? We'll answer all these questions and more on this week's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Opera is a constantly evolving art form. After 400 years, new works are being brought to stages around the world on a regular basis. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturers Naomi Baratera and Elspeth Davis are joined by composers Christopher Cerrone and Laura Kaminsky, as well as producer, director, and dramaturg Lawrence Edelson. They'll be discussing their experiences navigating the contemporary world of opera in an interview from this past season's Opera in the New Millennium event. So thank you for coming to the uh, second half of Opera in the New Millennium, part two. And so we're going to get things going right away. I know everybody's really excited to um, meet our panelists and talk to our panelists. So actually, we're going to invite everybody up now, and then we will introduce them. Um, so if you guys just want to come up on this very narrow stage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the gentleman to my right, this is Christopher Cerrone, and everybody was here for the morning session. You all know everything about him. This lady right here is very excited to be here. Um, so Chris is a composer, born in Long Island. Um, we talked a lot about Invisible Cities this morning, so Chris is the composer of that. And to, and to his right is Laura Kaminsky, <laughs> and we also listened to some music by Laura this morning and talked a little bit about her. Uh, we listened to a longer excerpt from As One, which she worked on with Mark Campbell and Kimberly Reed. And so we also talked about how Laura grew up here in New York City, and she has wonderful a wonderful list of fellowships and awards and prizes and has done amazing work with a lot of different organizations, including the 92nd Street Y, we were just talking about that before we came in, as well as Symphony Space and the European Mozart Academy, and she has lots of projects on the go right now, so we're excited to hear all about that. And then to her right is Lawrence Edelson, so welcome, and he is the founder of American Lyric Theatre and is a dramaturg as well, and so he's the artistic and general director of American Lyric Theatre, but does a lot of work directing and, and dramatur dramaturgical things. <laughs> and he has served as a facilitator of new works on several projects, including The Long Walk and JFK. And as a fun side note, uh, after we went and looked for people to be on this panel, when we finally had a final trio of people, we realized that the contemporary music and new music space is indeed a small world because uh, Chris worked with American <laughs> Lyric Theatre, his work, his opera All Wounds Bleed was written at ALT, and then also Laura and Larry know each other, and so and Larry and Chris know each other, so there's all kinds of interesting connections that we can talk about today. So let's get this show on the road. I'm going to start asking a question that I'm sure you guys have all had to answer many, many times before. Um, but just briefly, if you want to take turns, um, let everybody know how you decided to have a life in music, what led you down the path that you are on right now. I, you know, I, I think I'm, I, I straddle the opera world and I'm in and out of it, and the opera world is so sort of different than, each, you know, your sort of uh, composer friend to me said the other day, there's a Venn diagram, you can have two of them, orchestra music, opera music, and chamber music. Um, and I try to have all three. But uh, I became interested in music because it was the only thing I loved doing and knew how to do really well. And uh, 
uh, sort of came to vocal music and opera because I had a love of, you know, I, I think I had this idea and I still have it that opera is this kind of synthesis of all the art forms of words, of visual arts and of drama and of music. And so I basically became very drawn to the idea of music. To me, the music, the most powerful thing about music is its effective power, its ability to make you feel something and also its ability to blend with other art forms to have a greater expressivity. Um, sounds like Wagner. Uh, but <laughs> that's what sort of drew me to opera particularly. So I came to opera kind of late. Um, I actually wasn't always thinking I was going to be making my career in music, but I was writing music from a really, really young age before I could even read it. But I thought I was going to be a visual artist originally. And I did go to LaGuardia, but it was up in Harlem when I went there. And I originally thought I was going to go as an art student. And at the last minute, I decided I would audition for the music program because I had written some pieces and I thought there's probably not a lot of people who can write music even though I'm not a great performer and I went to music and art as a music, music major. Um, I mostly made my career writing chamber music and I thought that was interesting what you said about the Venn diagram because there are these different worlds and they don't all overlap in the same way. Um, like you might have a successful opera and chamber music people don't know about it, or you might have a great piece of chamber music and people don't know about it. Yeah, it's really different people, and now that I'm so immersed in the opera world, I'm realizing there really are these different communities. Um, but I made most of my life <coughs> writing chamber music, some orchestral music, but I've always believed that music is a storytelling form, even if it's abstract music, and a lot of my chamber pieces came with an underlying concept or thematic topicality to it, even though the music itself was abstract. And then when I had this idea to finally tell a story in song, I wrote my first opera, and now I'm kind of addicted. <laughs> um, my entry into opera was, I was a singer, and uh, transitioned into directing. I also had a background in dance, and I was very interested in the other side as opposed to performing. And I became very interested in contemporary opera. and. Um, Unfortunately, my thought was that I, I went and saw a lot of contemporary works, and there were a fair number of contemporary works, but I was always wondering why many of them weren't very good. And uh, I had the opportunity to, uh, when I was younger, assist um, on a production of Little Women at Glimmerglass, directed by Rhoda Levine, as many of you may know, her wonderful American director, uh, who was my mentor as a director, and I met Mark Adamo, composer and librettist at the time. And over drinks, uh, quite a lot of vodka, in fact, we were discussing the opportunities that were available for singers. Um, as I'm sure you know, at almost every opera company in the country, there are young artist programs for singers. But there really wasn't the same sort of opportunity for composers or librettists. And really, how do you become an opera composer? In conservatory settings, you don't study composition for opera. And in fact, many programs don't even focus on writing for the voice. Uh, which is quite shocking. You can go all the way through a master's or a doctorate program and not uh, have had that kind of experience. So I said sort of in passing to Mark, well, that's sort of something I'd love to start. And he said sort of prophetically, well, if you ever do that, give me a call. Well, two years later, I was finishing my master's degree at NYU in arts administration, and I had used my master's thesis sort of as a strategic plan for what would become American Lyric Theater and founded a program called the Composer Libretus Development Program, which uh, was the first and still the only full-time multi-year program to mentor emerging opera composers and librettists. And when I say emerging specifically in the field of opera, um, Chris is actually a graduate of the program, and uh, many of the writers that we have enter the program are quite accomplished as playwrights or as composers in other parts of the Venn diagram, so to speak. Um, and Mark uh, and dramaturg Corey Ellison, uh, became our founding faculty members. And Corey became a mentor to me. Um, I was thinking of myself at that time sort of as a facilitator more than a dramaturg, although I was trained as a, as a director. And it wasn't until after really working with Corey uh, for over 10 years before I started to use the word dramaturg to describe myself as well, because it really is quite a unique set of skills that are very different than directing or facilitation. And last year, we added a program to train opera dramaturgs as well. Um, Larry, if you don't mind, for anybody that doesn't know, why don't you explain to the audience what a, a dramaturg is, what well, they do? That's a loaded question. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to uh, explain it specifically in the context of new work development, because uh, opera companies often will have a dramaturg um, 
that function in a different way, um, writing program notes and super titles. And that's not really the type of work that I do, or certainly not the type of work we do at ALT. Um, Corey likes to define uh, a dramaturg as a neutral diagnostician. And that sounds really clinical, <laughs> but I love it because it, it really um, it emphasizes that a dramaturg is not a creative artist in that there's no place for ego uh, in being a dramaturg. But the dramaturg serves the composer and the librettist. I think of the job of the dramaturg being, when I'm working with a team, to help facilitate their best vision of their work. And I need to use my skills to help shine light on what they're doing, but not to impose my opinion of their work or my aesthetic framework, uh, the things I like or dislike on their work, but to help them realize their best vision of the work. And I think the dramaturg um, is incredibly important as an outside set of eyes in developing a work because when a composer and librettist are passionately engaged in a process, it can be hard to get distance. And although a, a director or a conductor or the singers involved in the development of the new work can, are also incredibly valuable in the development process, they also all have interpretive or writing roles. And the dramaturg is the only one who is not playing a hands-on interpretive or performance role in the work. And so if a dramaturg does their job, they're really serving the writers. And that's what they're doing. Are you going to disagree with me already? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like a dramaturg is like the, the operatic Supreme Court. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're for a marriage <laughs> Well, I mean, they, they, they try their best at neutrality. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think that's true. And you know, and Chris and I know each other well, so I should have expected this. <laughs> you, you can't completely remove your your personal framework, your aesthetics, uh, you know. But you have to try. I mean, and there are there are actually specific methods of inquiry and discussion where you can get to the heart of what artists are working at um, that intentionally try to pull your personal aesthetic framework away from the conversation. And that's that's really critical because I mean. To use Chris as an example, you know, if I had I, I have a general preference for uh, works that have a strong narrative framework, um, not necessarily ABC narrative, linear narrative. If I had, and I didn't work on Invisible Cities, but if I had, and I had imposed that preference on Invisible Cities, it would have been a disaster. And Invisible Cities is a brilliant piece, but it's not a piece that lives in that world. Mm -hmm. So I would not have been able to do my job if I was saying, well, you have to do it this way because this is the type of work I like. Yeah, it's totally true. And a good dramaturg just sort of looks at the work and then says, how do we make it better? Yeah, and it's, it's what are you trying to achieve here? And my goal is, are you actually achieving what you're, what you're setting out to do? And you, you, know, you said Supreme Court, I think uh, helping to facilitate the conversation between the librettist and the composer is a big part of the dramaturg role as well. All right, so before you even begin working with a dramaturg, how do you, Laura and Chris as composers, go about deciding to start a new operatic project? What are the inspirations, or how do you choose material? What is the beginning of the process like? Um, for me, it always it's always starts with the text, um, and sort of a text that, to me, imagines something is missing. Um, or you know, I, I'm, I do love story, but I think sort of for me, inspiration very much comes from words or something that, I to me that there's a you know I, basically, I think there's. Um, that opera at its worst is a slowed down play, um, and at its best is something wherein the emotional crevices are filled in. Um, and so I think the thing that I look at is, is there space for music? Is there space for the emotionality of music to enter the space? And is there, is there, is there a sense that perhaps what music does well would serve the story as opposed to what music doesn't do well? And like. What music does well is help you feel something and sort of or sometimes help you feel the opposite of what's going on on stage like can music deepen the resonance of the of the story or is it you know and so for me when i look at things like that i, I tend to look at things that are fairly sparse i mean i know there's i have not seen this like moby dick opera i'm like how did you make a really long book for this angels in america opera where they're already really long um, i don't know either of these pieces so i'm not passing any judgment but to me it's always like something short that needs to be made longer yeah, I mean, if you had set the 
the play of Tony Kushner's Angels in America, it would like far outweigh any Wagnerian cycle. Like 19 hours. <laughs> yeah. but, but I mean, it's interesting that you said that for you it starts with text, because for me it ne has never started with text. Um, it always starts with a concept, and it's generally some kind of issue or story that I see and hear that I think needs to be told dramatically through song. And then comes seeking the, the, the details, which means finding the librettist. And in my case, I've worked, it's been a slightly an odd history. I've done three operas now, and in all three of the, those first three operas, I've had two librettists, which makes that dramaturg probably necessary because they think they get two votes and I get one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we actually haven't had a dramaturg. We've kind of figured it out on our own. Well, but, but Mark, Mark Campbell actually thinks very dramaturgically as well. Yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, this musical dramaturgy and textual dramaturgy as well. And, and I think, but for me, it, the text follows, and then for me, I can't make it into opera until I see it. So I have to see those words physicalized, being real and three-dimensional, and then I hear them, and then I can set them. But it comes off, it always, for me, and this is my, I'm on my fourth opera now, it always comes from an idea or a story that I need to tell, and it won't be enough, as I've done for most of my career, to tell it as abstract instrumental music. So once you have a point of inspiration, and once you are beginning to have this desire to tell a story, can you talk a little bit about the, the timeline and or the pieces that have to fall into place in order for you to begin working on it? Sure, because we hear all these stories about uh, you know, Rossini and Don Setti who wrote operas and you know. Three months. Three months, <laughs> 10 days, however, however you, you want to call it. So what is the timeline usually like? Um, for you guys, and does it vary depending on the, the inspiration that you're working from, things like that? Not enough. Not enough? <laughs> not enough time. Not enough time. There's always enough inspiration. It's, it's always like time. an incredibly long time, and then like no time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> five years thinking about these, and then it's like, all right, can we do it next year? It's like, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the pro I feel like the process of getting an opera together is really hard. With an orchestra commission even, or a chamber music commission, they're like, oh, we'll spend a little bit of money on this person, we'll spend a little bit of money, it's fine. Opera company's like, okay, we're gonna shell out in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this piece, so the process of convincing people is a lot more complicated. Um, and then the actual writing, I don't know, I've written like 1.5 operas at this point, uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm working on a third, or 2.5. 2.5, um, yeah. Uh, and uh, I find the process is sort of it takes a long time to convince people that it's a good idea, and then once they're on board, it becomes very fast. It becomes like a roller coaster. I think it depends on if this is something that a company has commissioned, or if you've started. I mean, you started Invisible Cities on your own. Yeah, I've started every one of them. Oh, actually, you have all on your own, and, so, yeah. and you know, some of yours have been commissioned, some of them just came out of ideas. I mean, if a company commissions an opera, there is usually a sort of set of uh, goalposts or, you know, along a timeline. There's um, there's an outline that is prepared. You know, which is sort of gives us sort of a structural outline, a synopsis type outline. In some cases, it can be very detailed. That usually goes into a draft of a libretto. And these uh, milestones are uh, tend to be linked to the contracts as well. You know, you, people get paid when they deliver certain things, and they are actually approved by the companies as well. And that's an opportunity for workshops or for comments from the producers. Uh, also, uh, opportunities to have uh, touch points with funders. Uh, after libretto is written, there's a piano vocal score usually that's written, a piano vocal workshop of some sort, sometimes more than one, depending on how the company structures it. That goes to an orchestral score, an orchestral workshop, and then it gets up on its feet, or at least that's the goal. So, so I mean, I'm just, like, as you're telling that, I'm remembering my first foray into opera, and, like, I did everything wrong. But you but you also you developed as one in a very non traditional way and it and it was incredibly successful. So what did you do? So what was your path? Oh so so everything you said is what I've now learned is the way it should be. Um I as I said, I never thought I wanted to write opera. I'd barely written any vocal music. I had I was a producer and presenter, and I was producing a festival of Soviet-era music at Symphony Space. And I had a fellowship to go to Russia to seek music 
in Russia from the Soviet era that we would not know in the US that I could bring back from premiere on this festival. And among the things that I found were um, propaganda songs written in Yiddish that were published in Moscow in 1938 in support of Stalin. I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> jazz charts, when jazz was considered decadent music that was banned, there was a huge underground jazz scene, and I brought those jazz charts back. But the thing that I brought back that kind of has changed my life was a set of opera arias and folk songs that Shostakovich had arranged to be sung by one or two voices, violin and cello, as entertainment for the troops during the siege of Leningrad. You know, we would send Bob Hope. Russia would send Shostakovich. <laughs> so anyway, so I had this book. I, I discovered there was only one other copy of the book in this country. And I was told by a patron that the person who should premiere this would be Sasha Cook, because her mother is Russian, her father is a Russian scholar, and she would have really good Russian. So I wrote to Sasha Cook and said, would you be interested in doing this? She's an amazing mezzo. I'm sure some of you have heard her live. Um, and, she, and I said, and you have to promise me that if you don't do this, you cannot steal this book and do the premiere. I mean, I didn't know her, you know. <laughs> so she calls me up and says, I really want to do this, but there's some duets in the back of the book. May I bring my husband along? Could he join me? And it's like, great, two artists for the price of one. <laughs> sure. So I put them on this program at Symphony Space, and I just was blown away with them as singers, as artists, but as human beings. I felt the depth of their spirits as human beings, and I knew I wanted to work with them. And I was like, I, I want to write something for you. Backstep a little bit, I had thought that I wanted to write an opera about a transgender person in the context of gay marriage, which is what really was my entry point. Um, my wife and I got married in Canada, we couldn't do it in this country, and so I was following state by state what was happening as each state was voting about marriage equality. And there was a profile in the New York Times uh, about the upcoming vote in New Jersey, and they featured a suburban married couple, husband and wife, with two teen teenage kids, and the husband was in the process of transitioning. And the point of the article was that if gay marriage did not pass in New Jersey, they would no longer be married when he completed the transition, and they were going to stay together as a couple. And they went, Wow, this is the stuff of opera. How do you become who you really are? What do you give up along the way? What does that do to the people who know you? And, and what are you willing to sacrifice, like social, your social security, your protections? And I said, this has to be an opera. And standing backstage, hearing Sasha and Kelly, I just would, would you guys be the star of my opera? <laughs> and that was how it happened, like that, in a flash. And so they share the role of a transgender protagonist in this opera. So that's kind of how. Sounds like you did everything right. I Yeah. Nobody believed that I could write an opera. I didn't have a commission, I didn't have an opera company. I knew I wanted, when I knew it was two singers playing one role, I didn't want a big orchestra, so I chose a string quartet. And then, American Opera Projects, a sort of compatriot of yours, said that they would do a workshop of it. And I was like, okay, great, I got a little grant, I could get this tested out, see if it's good. And I get a call from Charles Jarden, the director, about a month before, six weeks before the workshop, said, when are we getting the PV? And I was like, what's that? <laughs> That's the piano vocal reduction. It's like, why would I need to reduce something that's for two singers and string quartets? <laughs> like, what am I going to reduce it to? So it was sort of like, okay, stop composing, make a PV. Like, I had no idea. What that's why we have a program now. Right. <laughs> anyway, it goes on from there, one 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 misstep after another. But it was you got to the finish line. Got to the finish line. That's so funny. So funny. <laughs> <laughs> What's the TV? <laughs> so, um, Chris, the path to invisible uh, cities becoming a production is a little non-traditional as well. Do you want to talk about that? Well, yeah, it's so funny. Uh, I really like hearing Laura's story because I feel that actually the wrong way is the right way to a degree, especially for your first one. It feels that you need to, everyone needs to find their own way into opera. Um, so I was, yeah, I was, I think, I, I don't even think I knew what opera was on some conceptual level. I mean, I did, like I said earlier. 
But my idea of opera was sort of very broad and just um, <laughs> something that involves words and visuals and music and drama. And I, I don't think I had a specific sense of, there's operas I love very deeply, but I would not describe myself as an opera fan or describe myself as a lover of music and a lover of drama and a lover, a lover of visual arts. So um, I was in grad school at Yale and I took this random class called writing an opera or something with or like opera writing or a number one opera scene class uh, with this guy named Ezra Latterman, which is sort of great, hilarious, curmudgeonly fellow who I'm very fond of and sadly passed. Um, but, uh, you know, he's just like, he's like, I, I mean, I really did it all wrong, too. I mean, uh, um, but Ezra's like, all right, we're going to write one scene from an opera. You've got four singers. And I was like, uh, okay. And I was obsessed with this author named Mattel Calvino. Um, as it sounds like you've heard a bit about the piece already. So um, I was obsessed with Calvino. I'd written a number of instrumental pieces inspired by his work. And I decided it was time to write an opera based on this book. And it was... Um, Without yeah. getting the rights. Right. I still have all those emails. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much easier to like make up your story and <laughs> 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 uh, unsurprisingly opera two is uh, in public domain. <laughs> so it's like I'm gonna do this thing and you know, I I wrote this one scene, it came out really well, so I'm like, okay, I was I'm writing an opera now. I submitted it to the New York City Opera's Vox Festival, which none of those exist anymore in as much, um, but New York City Opera, which is still very special to me because I saw my first opera there across the street at the State Theater, which I refused to call. <laughs> 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 uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, so it was very meaningful to me that New York City Opera took an interest in this scene, and we did it, and it was bad. I mean, just on every level, it was a disaster. And, um, I wrote it for orchestra, and I really is that the piece is not orchestral in nature, in my opinion. Now, later, um, you know, but it got like a really terrible review at the time. So, like twenty four, I was like devastated. And um, but you know, I kept going. You know, obviously, but I, you know, and I did have a workshop. Then I had a real workshop after that of the piece, which was at Yale, and they um, had a summer institute, and I had a I had a week um, working on the piece with a really great cast and a great director and dramaturg Corey Ellison. Um, who was the one who said to me, oh, I'm starting this program next year. You should apply. It's great. You know, and that's how I met Larry. But so we did a workshop and I would not say, I would say that it became clear to me what the piece was. It was a chamber-like piece. It was not orchestral in nature. And so, and we had these two pianists on the workshop because I demanded two pianists, not one. Um, and they were playing. And I'm like, well, this actually is what the piece is. This is, you know, this is the thing about the piano vocal score. Sometimes you realize the piano vocal score is actually the score. Um, so the majority of the score is based on two pianos, and then I sort of rounded it out with like seven or eight other instruments. But primarily, I realized that the thing I was writing was that. And so we did one performance of it in kind of a staged environment. It was, I, again, in my opinion, not particularly successful. I just felt like it was very literal. Um, and then I was approached by my friend Yuval Sharon, who was the director of the Vox Festival. And he says, you know, I have a really different idea for this piece. Um, and I said, what? And he's like, well, I want to do it in a train station with headphones. And I'm like, that sounds great. Like, <laughs> why wouldn't you do it? Because you know, I think for me, like, you know, a lot of the music has to do with kind of intimacy. It has to do with a kind of very close, you know, and the other thing I realized for me is that actually the singers I need, you know, there's another thing at City Opera was these kind of like resident artist singers who were just opera singers. And for me, I realized that the kind of singers I need were actually people with operatic training, but who are familiar with popular music, who are familiar with early music, and who are singing in a style that was quite different from what you would do on the stage of the Met. And so all of, you know, and, and having this sort of be done by this unconventional opera company, I was like, oh, great, let's amplify everyone. Let's, let's have this be, you know, have like sound design and reverb. And that was sort of what I realized the piece needed. So when you've all came to me with headphones, I'm like, this is perfect. This solves all of my problems, and it also solves the problem of the fact that this is not a particularly linear, linear work. It's a series of stories, and so therefore, like, the idea of expectations of traditional drama were sort of upended, but in a way that allowed a sort of the story to be told in a kind of almost installation-like environment. And so it all kind of worked out. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, and it, it just worked out. It was it was a very lucky sense of scenarios, but I think I was lucky in that I did everything wrong. And by doing everything wrong, similar to you, you kind of find the way you actually want to do things. <laughs> so, Larry, at ALT, I know you have a, a resident group of singers that the composers um, work with. 
Um, and have the composers spoken to you about, um, do they find it easier writing for specific voices? And this is a question for you guys as well. Or is it easier for you just to write the piece and then find the people to sing it? Well, we actually, we don't have a resident group of singers. We bring, oh. in, we bring in singers based on the needs of each project. Oh, got there it. are okay. a number of singers we work with fairly regularly because uh, there are singers who just have great facility with contemporary music and who are very responsive to the needs of writers. So, uh, oh, you know, composers and libertists are drawn to them and <laughs> singers are drawn to that process as well. Um, so really it's on a as-needed basis. Um, the composers can sort of speak to what they look for in singers. Sure. Is it is it easier for you guys to, to write the conceive the piece and then find the people, or do you enjoy writing for specific folks more? I mean, you know, my first experience was writing for two singers who I had such high respect for, as as I said, a, a their humanity as well as their artistry, and that that's really important for me. Like to make honest work, it's not necessarily just about this is a great voice and they're going to nail it and do everything that's on the page properly. It, for me, because this, it's so vulnerable, the storytelling through song, that I have to really kind of connect with my singers. So in the ideal scenario, if in my ongoing career in this field, um, and I've been very fortunate because as one now has had so many productions, that where I think of like about 30 productions in the last four seasons. It's like the most performed opera at Pi Factory now? Yeah, you could do that. Is this the most performed contemporary opera? Is that right? I believe so. That's yeah. amazing. Um, so, but what's been so great about it is there's now this family of, of mezzos and baritones, and they all feel this passionate connection to this character that they've shared, Hannah. And so I kind of know like some of the best mezzos and baritones in the country. And so as I'm thinking about new pieces, as I'm imagining when I get the libretto and I'm starting to give it, you know, dimensionality, I'm seeing specific people in my mind's eye and I'm hearing them, but I can see them physically embodying those words and that um, that that lint that that linear story. Um, and so, you know, in, in an ideal world, I would be able to say to the head of you know, Peter Gell, hi, thanks for the commission, and these are the five people I want to star in my opera. I, I don't think that that's always the case, but with the, the commission since As One, which was not originally commissioned, it was just a labor of love. I didn't make a penny writing that piece. Um, but in all the commissions since then, there's always been a conversation, do you have anyone in mind, aside from voice type, do you have particular singers that you'd like to consider? and directors, and that's given to the artistic director of the company that's commissioning, and then they do whatever they do that the creators don't know about, and then something unfolds. Um, but it really helps me to know who I'm writing for. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's so personal, the, the making of the story, making the characters real. I think that's one place where workshops also can be very helpful because it can be a point of discovery uh, about with new singers. And we've had a number of projects with ALT where the workshop process, we, we, we did a series of commissions one year where we commissioned three new full-length works, and I had all the composers who were to sit in auditions with me for three days and watch, just, you know, they had never been in vocal auditions before, and they, they were fascinated by this. And we cast the workshops, and uh, in one work in particular, um, piece based on the life of Alan Turing, which is uh, going to have its uh, orchestral workshop at Chicago Opera Theater this, uh, this February. Uh, we didn't find somebody that we quite wanted for Alan Turing, the title role. And uh, I had heard about a baritone who I had actually not heard in person, Jonathan Mickey, who's a brilliant, brilliant new baritone who's living in Germany. And I thought, well, let's take a chance on him in this first workshop and see what we think of him. And if it doesn't work out, it's a workshop. I mean, we're not hiring for the world premiere. Mm -hmm. And the composer and Lebrettes and I just fell in love with him. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant performer. And so the workshop process was part of that discovery, not only for the opera, but for the future of the piece mm -hmm. as well. And the composer then started to tweak parts of the score specifically in response to how Jonathan globally responded to the piece. I'm sure that's, yeah, that's one of the exciting things for the composer to do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, I feel very much that well, it's funny because I remember we did Invisible Cities auditions and we did not cast anyone from the auditions. <laughs> we literally, no one person we cast and she dropped out. So that was really funny. So I, I thought it was interesting that auditions were kind of pointless. Um, 
in that very specific scenario. But I think for me, it's all about finding. Yeah, like I've I've been I I it seems to be yeah I I mean I have my people I like very much, but it feels to me primarily about this kind of person who can. No, it just has worked outside of opera. It feels to me, it feels to be the primary thing. It's I mean, um, someone who does songs, someone who does, someone who does early music, someone who basically, th there is a very specific kind of sound, and it's very much uh, a necessity of certain kinds of opera halls um, that are very large spaces. And then I think a lot of singers are trained to develop a single, beautiful, consistent, large sound. Um, because for some reason these things are in, forbidden and or else that's the end of the world, uh, and I'm just like I'm not interested in that. So I'm like I'm fine with you know if you know if singers need an amplification, amplification that's great. Um, um, or as I learned from Larry, uh, sound reinforcement. <laughs> Very good thing. Sound design. Sound design. <laughs> Which is a different thing. Uh, but you know, I, to me, it became more about the music that I'm writing. My personal li in my personal life, I love opera and I love Billie Holiday and I love Radiohead and I love you know. And so the voices that I love don't exist primarily or exclusively from one world. They exist from many worlds. And to do what I do on the score, you have to be trained like an opera singer. But to do what I do right, you have to be able to sing other stuff as well. Can I ask you a question? Am I allowed to ask yes, a question? Please. Yes, of course. Then you just said something really interesting to do what you have to do from the, in the score. <clears throat> That's something that I'm really thinking about a lot as a composer because so much of what's so powerful about vocal music, in a way different from instrumental music, is that the personal, in a way that's different from, you know, the interpretation of a violinist can be different, but when you're singing words and they have meaning, that somehow on a page just seems so flat. How much freedom are you comfortable giving your singers? Because I often will write freely, and I'm very specific in my notation about rhythm, mm -hmm. but I want people to use that as a guide to be free. And like people who are trained in the, you know, has to be perfect, Oh, wait, there's a triplet tied to a quintuplet and then the dotted rhythm and it's on the and. It's like, that's just the shape. Find the music. But it's it's a complicated thing because the training is that you have to be perfect on <laughs> stage, but the humanity is taking it out of that. How do you how do you grapple with that? Well, Elizabeth will look currently losing it right now because she has some <laughs> peace of mind <laughs> uh, and with some very specific rhythms. I would like to say something. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Okay. This is five against four against three. <laughs> so I have sung uh, a fair amount of Chris's music, and um, the piece that we worked most closely on is actually for mezzo and percussion quartet, and, which I think is a little bit different because there's a big learning curve with the five of us because percussionists play things um, very vertically, and singers uh, sing things very horizontally. Um, and so trying to line everything up is something that was extremely important to them. Um, I think. I think for Chris's movement, uh, for Chris's music, that um, there are specific places where the rhythm is extremely important, and then there are moments where he seems to care less. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say, um, I don't know if there's a, a whole lot of flexibility. But did you that. know that as you were learning it, or did you have to like duke it out? when you're in the rehearsal process. Like, oh, we duked it out in the rehearsal process. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, mean, yes. it, I mean, it's interesting. Actually, I listened to that, that, I forget the name of the piece. It's so great. Um, it's a great piece. And, and yes. it sounded fantastic. Oh, thanks. Because um, I just finished an aria that is for um, my fourth opera postville, and it's for a very anxious person, and she's only accompanied by percussion. And I really thought about that. Like, how much can I give her room in between the verticality yeah, and specificity, like <laughs> you know, like how can I set her up that she's not going to freak out? But I want her to freak out a little bit because the whole point is she's in this like heightened state of being freaked out. So <laughs> it's finding that balance. Well, yeah. Like does the music help mess the singer up? There's something really <laughs> important though because in, that's different between concert works and and, and stage works and, and 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 opera. The composer is essentially the director. I think when in in stage works because in you know in a, a play where there's no music, 
the director will work with the actor on line reading. How fast are we going to do this? What is the, you know, the tempo of the, you know, the pitch, all that? You're giving, you're defining the line reading for the singer. By the way, by the, by not only the melody, but the tempo, what's happening, like branding with the orchestra. And so a great theater composer is thinking like a director when they're writing. One, and I, Chris has heard me say this many times, don't rely on stage directions either. The first thing directors do is cross them out. Okay, because if it's not sort of embedded, it, and I say that kind of jokingly, but it's also kind of true. If it's not, no, really, we literally, you've all was like, I never wrote your stage. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've, all, if you've all said it now, I feel vindicated. Um, you know, Kaz MacArthur and all that. But it, it's true. If it's not sort of embedded in the DNA of the music and in the text, then it's not part of the work. You know, and so I think that is one of the things that sort of really differentiates between a great theater composer and someone who could be a brilliant concert composer. I'm, I'm going to just pick up on that, because mm -hmm. like, that was one of my learning curves. Like Sometimes you can read a sentence and you read it straight, but it was meant ironically. And it doesn't look that way on the page. Mm -hmm. And the singer could or could not glean that if they don't go deeply into like what would motivate the character to sing that line. So then is there a necessity to put a direction, you know, sarcastically? Well, or something yeah. to, to help guide I that, think you which can. is maybe not mm -hmm. quite the same as a stage direction, it's more a, a motion direction. But, so the answer is yes, but also are there the things that I would say to a composer working on that, and I would ask them what, you know, if there was confusion about the reading of that line in a workshop, I would ask the composer and the librettist what the intention was, and then I might ask are there, are there other ways in terms of the setting of this or what's happening in the orchestra around it that you can help communicate that intent. Yeah. Beyond word sarcastically, which okay. is also a supplemental way to do that. Right. I mean, those are all those interesting tiny little details. But they're they're really that, that make it, yeah. Well, I think there's something about opera where I mean, I remember my one of my teachers in grad school said this, uh, Martin Bresnik, who I think didn't finally write an opera, but most of his careers, I think of him as a very precise chamber music guy. Um, and he's like, there's some, I mean, we're studying from the House of the Dead, which is a fantastic opera. Um, and he said there's something about Jadicek, something about opera composers. When you're writing opera, you have to kind of build in a certain amount of flexibility. In uh, Opera musically, I think, always requires a bit more flexibility than concert music. And there's going to be a sense of, well, sometimes this person, I, it's actually the thing I love about opera. I remember there was like, there's a part of Invisible Cities that was written after the first uh, concert performance and before the stage version where you've always like, I really need a costume change. You need to add a minute in here. And I'm like, okay, you know, and that's like sort of part of what's fun about opera is the idea that like, I'm like, I didn't have some musical god come down to me and say, you know, this shall not be exactly three minutes long. It's like, well, these people need to change their costume. You need to write a minute in here. <laughs> <laughs> you said Velcro's not buttons. I'm only giving you 40 seconds. No, I mean, it was sort of, sort of one, I remember getting, and people are maybe the same experience as that, when I first got into opera, people were like, started, like, you write a string quartet, no one's going to be like, yeah, I think that second movement, like, a little short, you know, like, and... I actually have a theory. Oh, I'm sorry, finish your No, no, and session. you go into opera, and they're like, well, I've got some edits for you, and I'm like, what? Who, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm finishing um, a piano quintet now that's going to get premiered uh, in February for Ursula Opens to celebrate her 75th birthday. And I sent two movements in the summer because I was in between finishing Today It Rains, my opera parallel opera about Georgia O'Keeffe, and waiting for the final approval of libretto for Postville. So I had like this window. I was like, OK, I'm going to get them half the piece because then I know when I have another window to finish it. And I requested a workshop. Oh, nice. And then I'm like, well, why don't we just rehearse? It's like, well, because. It would be great if we spent an afternoon and you played through it, and we decided maybe that this could be a little longer. And they like, we don't do that. No, 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 once you get you know, the opera book, you want to do that every single time. Because it is about, you know, we think we understand time, but it lives differently. And also, if it's something like as a composer, you're struggling over something, by the time you finally get it right, you're so bored with it, it seems like it's a lot longer than it is because you've been hearing it for so long, but it can go by too quickly. Well, it's like, you know, or you're in an orchestra piece and it's like flash trauma. It's like one rehearsal and rehearsal is over, and you're like, what happened? I mean, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I think you just kind of touched on something about that everybody wants to edit. I think there's also, in a bizarre way, you audiences maybe are more forgiving in abstract instrumental music 
than they are in opera. And I think it's because in opera we've created a world that had, there's an, there are these characters that are telling stories and they become real and three-dimensional. If you're listening to a 40-minute symphony and 20 seconds are boring, you think, oh, should I make pot roast for dinner? I, oh, that's a really nice drum roll. You know, <laughs> but if you're watching people on stage and one of them doesn't seem believable and you lose the thread and you think about the pot roast, you're not going to go back into their lives and you've lost your audience. So that thing about pacing and believability, to me, it's so, that's why there are dramaturgs, and that's why you end up composers and librettists can be yelling at each other. Because that, that moment where the audience stops believing, you've lost them. All right, so we wanted to open the floor so that you, our audience, could ask questions of our amazing <laughs> panelists. But before we begin, I have some ground rules. So <laughs> just a few things. So first, uh, Please, we, Elspeth and I will try and get to everybody that raises their hand as much as we can. We'll try our best. We tend to work in like a wave pattern. We'll kind of scan across the room this way. So if you put your hand up when my head is turned, it's, it's not you, it's me. I just can't see you. So I'll come back to you, don't worry. And also, please, please use your operatic voice when you ask the question, but Elspeth and I will repeat the question into the microphone so everyone can hear, all right? But try your best to think like an opera singer when you're asking so we can hear it as well. Use your diaphragm. Use your diaphragm, that's right. Breathe. Okay. So who would like, if, does anyone want to start? Yes, right here. So in the absence of extreme time pressure, how do you know when a work is finished? Laura and I were just talking about this beforehand. <laughs> I, I will just say that as one, as I said, has now had a, about 30 productions. We went to Utah in September, October to record it um, for a, a professional CD release with the original cast. We, we knew that that was important, that we needed to do it. And I'm sitting in the control room with the producer and Sasha Cook and Kelly Mark Ruffin, Five Street String Quartet, and Steve Osgooder on stage, and we're doing, you know, take six, and I get a text message from Mark and Kim, my librettist, do you think we could change these words? <laughs> <laughs> and we stopped everything and had this conversation, and we all participated about, okay, I said, guys, we're done, like this piece is done, but it's like, you, you're in a way, you're never done, because it's an alive thing, but the answer was, no, we're not changing the words, um, but, you know, it, it as one feels done and settled, but every time I hear it, it's like, oh, I could change that, and we still have these conversations because it's a living thing. No, I feel the same way. I like recorded a piece, we did a release of it, we did a video of it, not cool, but don't worry. Um, <laughs> and then I just revised it like a month ago. I was like, let's cut a little bit of this. So I think it has, you know, over the years, things change, the feel changes. I mean, the revision thing can only be dangerous is that you can't get overly reactive to specific performances wherein if it's done right it sounds good and then sometimes it's a bad performance you're like oh this piece is a mess and you know like yeah. but I think that it's yeah I mean the, the, it tends to be like the revisions get smaller over time um, and I feel as I get a little bit older I have a little bit more of, I mean I think you kind of have to as a composer not spend the entirety of your life chasing your hundred children around where you're like well that part i mean i had this concert last week in nashville and every piece i'm like I need Jesus. you know and so i there's no good answer but there's like you do your best to kind of calibrate your compositions in a way that you hope require fewer and fewer revisions over the years but i don't know there's no good answer to this so it, when it feels done you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to add one thing to that. I think in the in the actual process of making the work, the more we do it, I, I, I don't know if this is true for you, but there's a better sense that you can kind of like slash and burn a lot of stuff that you believe in, but then realize it doesn't belong in the piece after all. Oh, I think everything's too long. Like yeah. literally every piece in the history of music yeah. is too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh, that needs to be cut. Oh, that needs to be cut more. That means, yeah, oh, totally that was my favorite theme. theme, and it's not there anymore. But it's because it didn't belong, and you kind of start knowing that more. Well, something I think it's really nice about being really rigorous with your own work is that it actually is a gift to performers. Because if the piece is a little bit, if you if you have been extremely tight with your own composing, 
then they can be like, oh, I'm going to take a little minute here and, you know, um, enjoy myself and have a little expressivity. And if the, the more rigorous a composer is, the more it gives performers room to be expressive without bogging the whole piece down. At the back, Asani first. Okay, so the question is, who do you foresee the audience for opera is in the future? And with the follow-up to you, you were talking about blending many different influences, yet sometimes audiences today describe their taste as being very siloed. People who like jazz only like jazz. People who like opera only like opera. Um, so how do you see the audience of the future and how they might change? I don't think there's one audience for opera. I, I, mean, I don't think there's one now, and I don't think there'll be one for the future, because I don't think there's any one kind of opera, quite honestly. Um, I think that our potential audiences are going to be guided by the diversity that we embrace in the work that we champion, both in terms of the canonical repertoire as well as new works. And when I, when I talk about diversity, I don't mean just the works themselves, but the way in which we produce those works. I'm just going to say that this is not exactly answering your question, but I think it's fundamental to all the arts, which is if we don't have strong arts programs in school mm -hmm. from little kids through college years, we're not going to have audiences. And, and people seek art, but if they don't know what's out there and they don't know how to approach it, we're going to lose audiences. It's really important. As a kid who grew up and went to public schools in this neighborhood, I saw all my first art in school and learned music and learned visual art in school. And I think that the future of audiences will depend on our society's commitment to giving arts education a place at, at the table. I think we can't have this conversation also without ignoring and ignore the fact that the majority of people uh, today or of, of younger generations their default way of consuming entertainment or art is not live performance. Mm -hmm. right? it's, enter it's the internet, and and so, um, and this is a really tough thing for me to reconcile because I love the live performance experience, whether it's opera or dance or theater. I just I, there's just something about that communal experience of being in a theater with it's people. Visceral. It's visceral. There's nothing like it. But I was very fortunate that I got you know I didn't have opera in the whole. In my, my parents didn't like opera, you know. But I did get brought in. The first thing I got brought to was Nutcracker or something, which is a very common thing. You know. um, if we don't find ways to engage kids in a live performance experience when they're young, it's not only off, I mean it is absolutely education in the schools, but also the general director of Opera Saratoga in upstate New York. I split my time between here. And one of the most important things we do is a program where we bring 50-minute offers into the schools. We, we serve about 15,000 children in upstate New York through this program in, in seven different counties. And to me, that's so critical because these kids, whether or not they have a music program in the school, for many of them, it's their first contacts with live performance. And in this case, hearing a live opera singer. Right. And you know, I I both cringe and love when you see little kids going like this, covering their ears when they're so close, and they think, they're so loud. How do they get so loud? And then they try to imitate them, and they think it's so much fun. If we don't provide that sort of opportunity, we're sunk. Because if we, I mean, if we at the same time have to find ways to take that live experience and find channels of distribution that do embrace modern technology. We can't just say that opera is only live performance. As much as I would personally love to say that, because I love that part of it, that's not what the rest of the world is, how the rest of the world is evolving. So we need to find channels of distribution to get opera out that are not just you know the broadcast, you know, the, the net broadcast, that's one way. But there, we need to find creative ways to engage people in their own, uh, in the way that they engage with other forms of entertainment. Well, and, and just on what Laura said, I mean, I think so many people who love classical music had piano lessons, had some kind of access into the performance of music. Had some, and I, I mean, I was lucky because my parents were, you know, there was a program at my school. You know, I took piano classes. I really liked it. My parents gave me piano lessons, and um, I think a lot of access into this kind of music does. Off, people often do have a performing background, just enough to know that, like, just enough to know. Like, I've taken enough voice lessons in my life to know that what they do is incredible. Not that I do it well, and I think there's something to that as well. I just want to say something to what when, when you were talking about you know you do those outreach programs with the kids and they say how do they why do they sing so loud when when Seattle Opera did as one they did a really beautiful 
um, community engagement program. And they brought in a group of um, trans youth and their parents, and in many cases, their parents had kicked them out. So they were with their foster parents or caregivers. And we did a private event with them, and they heard excerpts from the opera, and then there was going to be a panel conversation, discussion. And the first question was this little 12-year-old kid, and I thought, oh my god, this kid is so brave. This is a trans kid, pre-adolescent, about to make a profound statement about what they just saw. And the question was, how come they sing so loud? <laughs> <laughs> they went, oh my god, the learning is going in all directions. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, we were all like braced for, you know, a very, you know, complicated question. And it was like. <laughs> all right, next. I have a question. In the future, are we going to see film cinema um, becoming, like we saw with The Shining, with Silent Night, using film as a way uh, to from an operatic standpoint to draw different audiences. And even when I, I saw Ellen touring, mm -hmm. I guess when you all did it on 67th mm -hmm. Street, yep. and of course I think it was just coming off of what the uh, Enigma machine or... Well, that, I mean, that was not based specifically on the film, but yes. I mean, film, <coughs> I think that's an extension of just adaptation throughout history. I mean, you think about the first operas were based on the, the, the you know, Miss of the Oristata, right? So <laughs> everything is, it, it, this is nothing new. And we have offers now that are based on film, and uh, there are now offers based on video games. And <laughs> so I, I think it's part of the. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, and I think, you know, for, for me, the question is why make it into an opera? Anything, whether it's a book or whether it's based on a historical subject or if it's a video game, what is it that opera is going to bring to the subject matter that makes it? You know, really embrace the expressive potential of that the art form. I don't think every movie is ideally an opera, but I think some probably do make wonderful opera. Shining was a very effective work, you know. So I'm sure we'll see. But it was also a book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But 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 I mean, that's really interesting what you're saying because in all of my pieces so far, all four of them, they were original stories that did not come from a novel or a film or a play and all the characters were made up and or in the case of the Houston Grand Opera Commission which was inspired by the Rothko Chapel and Dominic de Manil and Mark Rothko there were real life figures but the story was completely made up and all the characters that went through this journey in the chapel were fictitious um, I'm now in a conversation about uh, another opera project um, that would be based on a novel. And I'm nervous about it. It's like, the story's already there. You know, like, part of the joy for me, and I'm not the librettist, but I've, in all of my pieces so far, I've been the one who's had the idea for the story and the idea for what I wanted the, the, the emotional energy and the, the narrative to be. And then I got the most amazing people to write the words. But... I don't know, you know, that that's a, that's a different piece of an answer to your question, but it's kind of like, well, what would motivate somebody to want to tell a story and song? I, I think some companies are motivated by this also from the marketing angle, right? It's a recognizable title, and but but that's also not new historically, right? <laughs> because the, these works that were based on things that were in the public consciousness is just the, the way that we transmit the information statement. Well, I think that there's a, there's a double-edged sword in all that, in that I think that it can be a problem when you're like, oh cool, I want to see the opera version of the movie, and I think that that is a problem, mm -hmm. because opera and op movies do different things very, well, di different things well, mm -hmm. you know, it's more the point is that I think it's lazy when opera companies just try to get people to come to an opera because it's a famous movie of the same name. I'm actually like, literally working on an opera that was... Uh, based on a very short, short story that was then adapted into a very famous movie um, and I kind of very purposely avoided the movie for a long time because I didn't want to mm -hmm. and I think there's there's room for these things but I think there's something about mood like this I think in the case of The Shining there's like you know that is a book and written by Stephen King who doesn't even like the movie The Shining <laughs> so there's a lot of room there for a different kind of adaptation but I think I think adapting literal movies into operas is very problematic. 
Me and Mark Campbell was the Lopez for designing. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, Mark and I both tend to wake up really early, and by 5 30 in the morning, there's usually about 10 emails back and forth. And I remember one morning I went to open my email, and there's this message. I got <coughs> approval from Stephen King. He loves my libretto. It was like he was so nervous waiting to get that, you know, mm. sign off from, you know, Stephen King. <laughs> My question is, is there space in opera? Is there, do you see in the horizon works where there are sounds in the opera that are not created by traditional instruments, uh, vocal lines or singers that are not singing actual words but are making sounds? And where, what are your experiences or thoughts on that? You just I no, I mean, I've, I've done all those things, so <laughs> <laughs> it seems normal. It seems, doesn't seem weird. It seems de rigueur. Have you done interactive, though, where the audience people might sing something back to the performers? I think it's good to keep performers performing and audience <laughs> members audience <laughs> members. <laughs> I'm developing a new piece, which is, I don't know what it is yet. I wouldn't call it an opera. There's singers and there's a space. And actually what's happening in the piece will be that the audience members moving around the space will transform how the soundscape works so that there'll be sort of microphones everywhere and walking around is going to have an imprint upon the sonic environment. So in a sense, it will be interactive in that way, but I don't want singer. I don't want like audience members singing. I want the singers singing. <laughs> 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 we have time for one more question. Yes, at the back. Mm -hmm. Hi, so the question is, we've been talking a lot about American composers, and we want to know what's going on in Europe right now, and if there's been any influence on you guys as to what's currently happening in the music scene in Europe. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm just going to answer in a more general way, which is I listen to lots of different kinds of music from different parts of the world that some are in the opera realm, some are in <laughs> improvisational music, some are pop music, I mean, and all of that sort of finds its way into what I do. Um, I don't specifically feel, I, I feel like maybe, op and, and I think that um, there's been a, a recent more welcoming of American opera in Europe. I think we've always had a European welcome here. Um, I think I don't know, I think we live in a much more global world, and, and I think a lot of those boundaries are down. Um, and I don't know enough to answer about the opera world per se. I don't know, maybe you do come well, in and administrate. I, I was just in Madrid <coughs> at the World Opera Forum, um, and new works and cultural heritage were two of the four main topics. Um, I was also talking about new works, but I, th I thought the intersection between new works and cultural heritage was really important because, you know, in Europe, they're, the way they think about cultural heritage is so, I mean, it's part of the, the DNA of, of so many countries in Europe. It's not really part of the DNA uh, over such a span of time. It's becoming more part of our DNA now uh, in the States. Um, they, what I was surprised by was how, um, excited and in some cases envious uh, European administrators were, uh, general directors, about how much new work is happening in the United States and how much we embrace that opportunity. This is not to say there's not a lot of new work happening in Europe. There is. Um, I would say some of the new work in Europe tends to be more adventurous musically um, than what we what we are tending to embrace here. And obviously adventurous can mean many different things to different people. But um, there is... Um, a lot going on there. We don't see as many of those works coming over here. Part of that is not because of the lack of interest, but I think some of that has to do with our funding systems. Uh, for new works, there are a number of opportunities for companies and for composers and artists to be funded. That and they're, they're, we're championing American writers as as we should be here in this country. <laughs> and so, you know, if you know, if I'm the general director of a company and I have four or five works on my season and I want to program one. Um, I, I am thinking both artistically and strategically about how I'm going to pay for it, quite frankly. And so to bring something in that my audience has no frame of reference for, uh, unless I am a, an extremely well-funded large company like the Met, uh, who is able to bring some of the European work over. We have seen like the Sakai's piece come over, um, but how long did it take for us to get that here at the Met? You know, it had been performed all over the world before we brought it here. So I think we're getting more of that, and the more that we get here, the better off we are because we hear it. But fortunately, I think, and I think you know, Chris and Rory can speak to this, because of the internet, uh, we're able to be exposed to a lot of music we may not get to experience live. Um, you want to talk to them? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like there is a sort of thing in Europe which has become a little more common here, which is like, I guess there's a German word in German, like Musiktheater, um, which is like, mu not music theater, and not opera, and that's sort of a tradition that exists in Europe, less here, but I think in the last 10 or 15 years it's become much more the case is that there are a lot of things that are sort of operas that are kind of getting attention that like, you know, I'm thinking again about like what Beth Morrison does, where there are things where some things are definitely operas, some have music, they're an hour long, two hours long, and there's maybe a plot, and I think that there's more of a history of that in Europe, I'm thinking about like some of the works I love by like Salvatore Sharino, who calls everything an opera, but it might not be very operatic traditionally, or the kind of works of like Beat Fuhrer, I saw a piece of his in the Netherlands a few years ago, where it's sort of like a sound space, and people walk through, and there's a singer, but you wouldn't really call it an opera, and that there's not really a plot. So I think that Europe has this kind of third space for like music theater, which is not music theater, and I think that that's become actually much more of a thing in the last ten years in America. Like, so that's, and then, I would say it tends to be a little bit more left of center, and then everyone's naked in Germany. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's sort of like radical to not be naked in Germany. I remember I was like, talking to a German singer, and she's like. Uh, I don't mind being naked, but does it have to be every single time? <laughs> so I think that the nice thing about Germany is there's, or Europe in general, is there's an openness to more kind of experimentation. What's nice about America is I think that there is some sort of sense that because the funding, like in Europe, it tends to come from these art councils and it tends to be a little less connected to the public. In America, because people have to do it by like starting it from their master's thesis and finding the funding themselves, there is a natural and I think good uh, connection, attempt to connect with an audience. All right, we are out of time, so I want to take the opportunity to thank all three of you, both for being here with us today and spending the time sharing with us about what you do, but also thank you for putting such wonderful works into the world and spending your creative energies doing that because we as a society are all better for it. It is wonderful to hear all of your work and to see your work performed and so thank you very much for giving to opera as much as you do and thank you all for being here many thanks to composers christopher sarone laura kaminsky and producer director and dramaturg lawrence edelson for joining in conversation with our lecturers naomi baratera and elspeth davis if you enjoyed this episode and are interested in attending a live event here at the Metropolitan Opera Guild in the upcoming season, keep an eye out for our announcement of programming on metguild.org. Or you can find us on your favorite social media platform. I'm Stuart Holt, and thanks so much for listening.